to the Marathon Medic podcast. My name's Amy and I'm a junior doctor and running coach with an interest in sports medicine. On this series of the podcast, we're diving into the complex world of sports nutrition. My guest on this episode is Emeritus Professor Michael Gleason from the School of Sport, Exercise and Health Sciences at Loughborough University. Michael has published over 50 papers related to the health, nutrition and performance of athletes and has previously been the president of the International Society of Exercise and Immunology. On this episode, we're discussing the role of nutrition on immune function in physically active individuals. So hi, Professor Gleason, and thank you so much for joining me this morning. Um, But before we start, would you mind just introducing yourself and letting everyone know a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm I'm Professor Michael Gleason. Most people know me and call me as Mike. I've worked in in academia for about 40 years, but I retired about five years ago. And my main role has been as a sort of a, a lecturer and researcher on diet metabolism, and exercise immunology and how nutrition and exercise influence the immune system and the susceptibility of athletes to in, to infection. And uh, so it's nice to be able to talk a little bit more about that today. I'm based at Loughborough University, probably enough, enough for now. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so yeah, we're going to explore immunonutrition today, which I think is probably a term that people aren't too familiar with. And you kind of touched on, on, on what that is already. But what, I guess, what exactly is immunotrition and are there any particular areas of nutrition which are important in terms of our immune system? Yeah, I guess immunonutrition, you would say, is sort of the study of the effect of nutrients that can be macronutrients like protein or micronutrients, vitamins and minerals and others that we eat or drink on immune function, how it affects the function of your, your white blood cells, for example, in defending you against infection. So it's also a little bit about how nutrition influences your resistance to infection and also how you respond to infection, infection when you do get ill. So, for example, things like vitamin D, uh, selenium, zinc are, are important micronutrients which influence immunity. And if you're deficient in them, your immune system won't be optimal. In some cases, if you do get infected, like for example with COVID, it can make those symptoms worse. And your interest is particularly in sports and, and looking at immunonutrition in the context of athletes. Are athletes more at risk of infection? Is there a particular reason why immunonutrition is so important in in the context of sport? Yes, um, endurance athletes in particular who are doing hard training and taking part in endurance events like marathons uh, tend to have a higher susceptibility to picking up respiratory infections in particular. We're really talking mostly about the common cold and and, and, and influenza. They tend to get most of their illnesses when they are training hard, usually doing an intensified period of training above what they would normally do, or following the actual um, participation in a, an endurance event, a competition like running a marathon or an ultra marathon. And we're going to explore some of the particular um, components of nutrition, which people can become deficient in and that can affect their immune system. But I was just wondering, are these in- endurance athletes at particular risk from certain deficiencies? To a degree, we could say that. In part, this is because when you do hard exercise, 
you you adapt to the training adaptations going in, in, on in your cardiovascular system and your muscles that you use in the activity. And one of those adaptations for endurance runners is an increase in the uh, the overall blood volume. There's an expansion of that, particularly the fluid portion of it, but also you produce more cells then to, to make up your red cell count. Uh, so that increases the need for the uh, the vitamins that are involved in red blood cell production, folic acid and uh, vitamin B12, for example. There's also adaptations in your muscles. And one of the adaptations there is an increase in the number of mitochondria, your energy powerhouses in the, in the muscle cells. And uh, a lot of the B vitamins actually act as cofactors that, or coenzymes that work alongside the enzymes that are in those mitochondria that are in your metabolic pathways like your Krebs cycle and things like that, uh, that you need to produce energy for your running. So because you've got more of those, there's an increased requirement, you could say, for those B vitamins to, to supply that need. So yes, some things are increased like that. Uh, with running, you can get what's called foot strike hemolysis as well, which involves the crushing and destruction of some of your red cells in your feet as that's, as they hit the ground while you're stomping along in your trainers. And uh, that, can inc- that can increase your iron losses. So you can, uh, you, you can have an increased need for iron as well. And of course, that's part of your hemoglobin, which is also in your, your red blood cells that you need. So yes, it can have an impact on that. I've never heard of um, foot strike hemolysis. That's really interesting. I've, n- I've never even considered that that would be a be a, a thing that could happen. Yeah, I mean, there's another thing as well with with runners that you don't see it so much nowadays, but it used to be quite a big thing about twenty, thirty years ago, called sports anemia. If you've heard of that one, but it, it's because you get this large expansion of the plasma volume as an adaptation to endurance training. And uh, you do increase your red cell production, but it never gets it back up to the actual same red cell count, the number of red cells that you have per, say, liter of blood uh, is a little bit lower. So your hemoglobin concentration is a little bit lower, even though you've got this bigger volume, you've got a total larger mass of hemoglobin in your blood. But it's it's just slightly diluted when you look at it, you know, mm. per milliliter of blood or something. So uh, people thought, oh, that. That means you know, athletes therefore need a lot more iron to make up for that. But it is actually now recognized as what you call a, a pseudo anemia. It's not caused by insufficient production of cells. It's just your body's natural response to doing that. You know, with pregnancy, you get the pseudo anemia as well. You may have heard that as a medic. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's just one of those things. But uh, it's, uh, there's not too much concern about iron for that reason anymore. Okay, that's quite interesting because I um I give blood quite regularly, and the two times that I've been rejected because I've been anemic is around areas where I've been training for events, and I've just not been allowed to give. So I I guess that that links quite nicely. That's probably why. And it is, and of course, you know, women also have losses in you know through menstrual bleeding. So you know, you you, mm. you the ladies have a higher requirement than the men. I think it's uh, the RDA fryer and is 18 milligrams a day for, for women, but it's only eight milligrams a day for men. It's just because of that, that, that reason. Mm, that's really interesting. So if we just dive into, I guess, a few of the, the vitamins and, and minerals that are really important in terms of our immune function, I think one that everyone always wants to know about is vitamin D and I know just for the general population, we should all be taking vitamin D supplements in the winter if we're in the UK anyway. 
But how important is vitamin D in our immune function? And should athletes be taking more vitamin D than than the general population? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Vitamin D is is certainly very important for immune function. I mean, again, if you go back 30 years ago, it's always been recognized as being important for for calcium absorption and for for bone structure. But uh, only in recent years, probably last 10 years or so, it's become recognized as being very important for immune function. And um, your, your white blood cells actually produce the hormonal form of vitamin D within their cells themselves that you know that indicates it is very important for their ongoing function and it acts to switch on a lot of the genes that produce the proteins that you need to produce a, a strong immune response and it's also involved in the production of a, the what you call the antimicrobial proteins that are in our body fluids so certainly studies show that if if you are deficient or even just have an inadequate vitamin D status below normal what it should be, then you are at an increased risk of both developing common cold infections. And also when you get those infections, they they tend to last for longer and the symptoms are more severe than if you had good vitamin D status. So certainly very important for, for athletes. Again, not so much in the summer months. Most people get most of their vitamin D through the action of sunlight on the skin where it's produced there when the sunlight is strong enough. The problem is between the months of, say, October and March in the UK, the, the, the sunlight isn't strong enough to do that. So we're entirely reliant on diet. And normally we'd only get about 10 to 20 percent of our vitamin D supply from the diet, which means a lot of people can become uh, inadequate or deficient as we pass through those winter months, particularly if they've been doing a lot of training indoors rather than outdoors beforehand or not had much sun exposure. You know, maybe the weather's been a bit cold in September, October, and you start putting on your, you know, your your jumpers and your, your sweatpants and things like that uh, to, go out, to go out running. And so, yeah, so what we recommend for athletes generally is to take a supplement of uh, 2,000 international units of uh, vitamin D3. That's uh, 50 micrograms, if you prefer your units of vitamin D and micrograms rather than international units. Uh, Take that daily from the beginning of October. And that will ensure that, you know, assuming your vitamin D status was okay at the end of the summer, that it it will keep that way throughout the the winter. So that's actually higher than the recommended amount for the general population, isn't it? Yes. And and, and it's, it's well above the, you know, the RDA. Yes, so it it is a supplement. It's probably the only one you really need to take in such relatively large amounts compared to what is the accepted, you, you know, recommended day, daily allowance. Yeah. Um, and and I guess another one that we're all quite familiar with is vitamin C, and often we're kind of going for the orange juice when we start feeling like colds coming on. So, how important is vitamin C in our immune function? And again, is that something that people should get quite comfortably from their diet or is it something that you do recommend supplementation for? Vitamin C is something that's probably been shown really not to be effective for the general population in reducing the uh, incidence or risk of picking up respiratory infections. So you can't really recommend it as a supplement for the, the general population in that in that sense. However, there were some studies done on marathon and ultra marathon runners back in the uh, 
late 1980s, early 1990s. These tended to indicate that if people were taking fairly high amounts of vitamin C, around about 600 milligrams per day, that they would get uh, some benefit in reducing the risk of picking up upper respiratory tract infection symptoms following a marathon race or an, an ultra marathon. So for people who are involved in uh, occupations with high f- levels of physical activity or for endurance type athletes who engage in those activities on a regular basis through training and competition, that it might have some benefits uh, for them. Now, you can get that through obviously eating lots of fresh fruit and vegetables. Oranges are the classic, of course, and it's also in high uh, amounts in, in in potato skins from you know fresh new potatoes. But yeah, you, you might want to take take a supplement and it comes in a variety of forms and it's pretty safe to take even in relatively high doses with it being a water-soluble vitamin. Generally, any excesses that your body doesn't, don't need, doesn't need when the, the tissues get saturated with vitamin C, which should really happen at a dose of about 200 milligrams a day. But people always seem to want to take more than that, but uh, probably don't need to, probably. Uh, but yes, it will... Uh, uh, possibly help you with reducing infection risk if you're a runner. And um, I I suppose they're the most well-known vitamins that we've already spoken about, um, and we we touched on iron as well. Are there any other minerals or key components of our nutrition which you've put lots of research efforts into or um, you feel are very important in terms of our immune function? Well, in terms of micronutrient, iron is important uh, for your immune system. There's also selenium and zinc, which we tend to hear a little bit less about in the in the media, but these are also very important for normal immune function and also the again the normal response to infection. I've mentioned that a couple of times, so perhaps I could just explain that you know our nutrition is important for our immune function, for defending us against infections, improving our resistance to infection, if you like. But also then there's subsequently, if you do get infected, you know, COVID, for example, is highly contagious. So there's nothing you can eat to stop you getting COVID. But if you get it, what you don't want are those high-level inflammatory symptoms that ultimately result in you having to go into hospital and having breathing problems. And one of the things that guards against that is having adequate vitamin D, zinc, and selenium status. You could consider zinc as an important mineral because one of its actions is to inhibit the replication of viruses, which when they get into our body, they target the cells, they get into our cells, and they try and replicate themselves using our own actual machinery. And when they you know do that, and then they they burst out of the cell when they've 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 produced a lot more thousands and thousands of virus particles, and then they they get over the rest of the body. So anything you can do to stop them proliferating in your cells is good. And zinc does that; it inhibits the enzyme that allows those cells to uh, viruses to replicate, and it actually helps to stop the virus uncoating itself when it gets inside the cells to release its own genetic material. So, yeah, zinc's important for that. And selenium is important as a component of antioxidant enzymes. And these seem to be important, again, in defending against us against having too much inflammation when we do get infected with things like COVID. And I suppose when we have deficiencies in, in any of the vitamins or minerals that, that we've touched on, as you mentioned, the 
impact of that is going to be increased infection. And when you get that infection, that possibly being worse. Are there any earlier kind of warning signs that you might be deficient in any of these areas? I know it will probably be different for each one. So with iron, you might have symptoms of anemia. So feeling more tired, maybe short of breath on exertion. But for the the less kind of familiar vitamins uh, and minerals like zinc, for example, is there anything that you do notice in athletes or the general population which might be a warning sign that actually you are becoming deficient? No, no, nothing, nothing really in terms of out, outward with symptoms. So, you know, even if you have a deficient in vitamin D, you, you you wouldn't know it, you know, unless you actually have a blood test and measure. You can measure the level of 25 hydroxy vitamin D in the in the blood plasma, and that's a very good marker of vitamin D status. That's what usually used to indicate vitamin D status in a, in a person, but it does require a blood test, and that costs costs money, of course. Um, you can also measure zinc status by measuring the uh, the content of zinc in in red blood cells so you can do that from a blood sample selenium you can just measure the plasma selenium status so there are a number of measures that can be done but they're all invasive requiring you know a blood sample and somebody to look at the results and interpret those for you so no obvious outward symptoms again with anemia yes Perhaps that's the exception where you might start feeling a little bit tired and lethargic. Your lips might look a little bit more pale when you're not wearing lipstick. (laughs) 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 You know, so, uh, yeah, there there are some signs for things like iron, but for most other things, probably not. And for active individuals, are these deficiencies which just may slowly manifest over time or is there a correlation with training volume? So, for example, if someone's been relatively well nourished for the last four months and they've been training for a marathon and then they do a marathon or ultra marathon, do they tend to become deplete afterwards? Is there a big, I guess, use of all of those um, minerals and vitamins during an event that's particularly high intensity? Or is it a general thing over a long period of time where people become deficient? No, 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 you don't you don't really become deficient in anything after being involved in hard training or or running. A marathon and the main reason for that is that what we talked about these vitamins particularly the b vitamins that say they're, they're cofactors or co coenzymes that are used in energy metabolism but they're reusable you don't actually burn them or use them up when they're when they're doing their role in helping the enzymes to work and you know make our metabolic pathways go correctly and at the right pace so you don't actually use anything up there so it's, that's not an issue and besides, anybody who is training hard would probably normally be eating quite a lot more energy, for example, and perhaps protein as well than somebody who is you know, relatively sedentary. So for most athletes, you know, provided they're eating a well-balanced, diverse, healthy diet, they shouldn't be deficient in anything apart from possibly vitamin D for the reasons we've already discussed. So no, it's, it, it won't deplete you of anything by running a marathon uh, in terms of vitamins or minerals. Uh, well, I suppose the one exception might be, you know, if, you, if, if, if it's a, a hot day, particularly if you're a heavy sweater, we do lose, lose some of the uh, minerals like zinc and iron, for example, can be lost to some degree in, in sweat. So that could contribute to the development of a deficiency if your diet isn't more than adequate but you don't lose vitamins in sweat so it's not that's not an issue for that and you touched on um 
athletes having a well-balanced diet. Are there any key foods that you always encourage athletes to include in their diets, which you know are very rich in all of these things that we've mentioned? Well, it, uh, it, it's what it says on the tin. It's a healthy, balanced diet means eating a mixture usually of uh, meat, meats, seafood, and lots of fresh fruit and vegetables. And just eating as much of the starchy vegetables like potato and rice and bread and other things like that, that you need to get the amounts of carbs you need in your in your diet, supply your muscles with the, the energy, because that's what you'll mostly be using if you're running a marathon, and particularly if you're running at a, a relatively high high pace. The other main thing we've not really mentioned so far is the importance of protein. And this is absolutely essential that you have adequate amounts of protein in your diet to supply your, your immune system, but help also to help your muscles adapt and repair to the training that you're, you're doing. Generally, the, the amounts of protein that athletes are recommended to eat is approximately twice that of the RDA that is recommended as the minimum amount for the, the general population. Uh, we normally express these things as a, on a basis of per kilogram body mass because people are different you know, body sizes and body weights. So it helps to do that. And for protein, the RDA, the recommended daily allowance is uh, 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram body mass per day. So if for, say, a 70 kilogram person, you're looking at about 56 grams of protein. Uh, of protein as a minimum really to satisfy the requirements for athletes say we normally recommend that they double that amount so they should be eating in excess of 100 grams of protein per day it doesn't really matter where the source of the protein is uh, the best quality protein is always from animal products like meat dairy products eggs fish etc uh, but they're also good plant sources of protein, uh, particularly like uh, lentils, peas, beans, etc., uh, rice, uh, all, all contain some protein. But you have to eat sort of larger volumes of those to get what you need in terms of, of protein. But it is still, of course, possible to be a, a vegetarian or even a vegan athlete. Uh, but you have to be uh, you know, more, more aware of what you need from the plant sources to get the adequate amounts of, of protein. Do you think the timing of that protein intake is important? So I know often uh, referring to protein as the thing that's really important for our recovery. So do you feel that that's actually more important to include after a hard training session? Or do you think as long as you're meeting the requirements day to day that, that that's sufficient? Well, the studies that have been done on protein ingestion following exercise actually mostly been done actually in relation to resistance exercise because it's obviously very important if you want to build your muscles make your muscles bigger and stronger you're going to need more protein because that the contractile elements in your muscle are all made of proteins you know so that that that's a pretty obvious thing it's perhaps a bit less obvious for the the endurance athlete because when you do endurance exercise your muscles don't get get bigger but they do adapt, as we've mentioned, in terms of increasing the number of mitochondria that increases the oxidative capacity and the capacity to burn fuels using oxygen, carbohydrates and fats. So, yes, more protein is needed for adaptation and certainly would recommend taking uh, on board some protein after a hard training session and after your competition to allow that adaptation to take place and it can also help to repair any muscle damage that occurs during uh, 
you're running, particularly if you're running downhill, you can get a little bit of muscle soreness and that's caused by some ultrastructural damage to your muscle fibers. And that seems to be best alleviated by having protein intake, possibly some antioxidant intake in the uh, in the hours after your training session. Perfect. So um, I, I guess just going back to the, the diet, we said that unfortunately there's there's no magic food that we can have that encompasses all of these vitamins and minerals. And then we've spoken about vitamin D is probably the only thing that we that all of us need to be supplementing. I just wanted to clarify, if you're working with an, an athlete, whether that's amateur or elite, is there anything else that you would recommend them supplementing? Or do you think it's just more case by case dependent, um, looking at their diet and if they've got any restrictions? Well, I mean, one of the advantages, other advantages of having a healthy diet with plenty of fruit and vegetables is that you're also providing fiber in the diet. And although we don't digest much fiber ourselves, we have got a large uh, population of bacteria in our our gut, mostly in the the large intestine, which you call the, the microbiota. And having a healthy microbiota also helps you have a healthy immune system because they interact. In fact, about 70% of your immune cells in your body are located in and around your gut. Always an interaction going on there. So if you have a healthy gut bacterial population, a microbiota, you've probably got a, almost certainly got a healthy immune system uh, as well. One of the things we can do to help with that, particularly if your diet isn't so good, is to take probiotic supplements. And there have been studies done showing that if you take probiotic supplements on a daily basis, you can actually reduce your risk of respiratory infections, as well as perhaps reduce your risk of having gastrointestinal problems with running or gastrointestinal infections. Uh, So yeah, a daily probiotic is relatively cheap, very little risk of any side effects once you get used to taking it for a few days. And uh, yeah, could also be helping to give your immunity a little boost as well. That was actually going to be um, one of my next questions. Obviously, in the ideal scenario, we'd be getting all of all of these things from our diet and not having to supplement. Is there a benefit from getting things from our diet over supplement? And are there any dangers associated with taking supplements? I think it's always beneficial if you can get things from the diet rather than resorting to taking sort of tablets and potions. So in in general, yes, and in, in, in all sport, particularly in football, you know, we, we do promote essentially a food first policy. So if you can get it through eating good, healthy foods, then do that and don't resort to supplements. Of course, there are some you might take for other reasons, like for the ergogenic benefit in reducing fatigue things like caffeine for example but you know that's that's a little bit out of the the remit about of what we're talking about today supplements there's always a risk with those maybe not for something like a multivitamin and there's no absolutely no harm in taking a daily multivitamin that contains all of the 13 vitamins that you you need that usually just provides the rda for for each one so that's that's a good insurance policy and i wouldn't sort of uh, dissuade anybody want from wanting to to do that there is a danger with over supplementation of very many micronutrients you know you don't have too much iron you don't have too much vitamin a uh, you don't have too much uh, pretty much of anything or you need to know what is the upper safe limit 
Now, for example, vitamin D, which we're talking about, is taking a relatively high dose of that in the in the uh, in the winter months, two thousand international units per day. That's about fifty percent below the European Food Standard Agency uh, sets as the upper safe limit of vitamin D intake. So you certainly shouldn't be taking more than say four thousand units per day, because then you're going to be going above that if you go above that amount. So a knowledge of what's considered to be safe, you know, for something like uh, vitamin C, for example, we know that certainly anything up to certainly up to a thousand milligrams per day, which is, you know, 20 times the RDA, but, you know, even so that, that that's safe because some of those, uh, say, water-soluble vitamins, you just tend to excrete in your urine so we generally say if you're taking those in high doses you're just producing expensive urine so you know (laughs) probably cut cut down the amount you need to use what's been shown to be effective or at least have the possibility of some effect in research studies and take the advice of qualified nutritionists but don't go overboard yourself and try and take too much of these things because more isn't always better and you can get toxicity problems with taking too much of pretty much any micronutrient. Yeah, and I suppose it's all quite individual as well, whether you've got a restricted diet in any way or, for example, if you're pregnant, the the needs that you're going to have and the limitations are also going to be slightly different. Yeah, I mean, for example, with with pregnancy, as, as you mentioned that, you know, one of the dangers in pregnancy is taking too much vitamin A, and yet pregnant women are definitely recommended not to take a vitamin A supplement because at certain times during the pregnancy, I think it's mostly in the first trimester, that if you take high doses of vitamin A or even just above the RDA, you have the possibility of getting some problems with the development of your growing baby. So that's a, a definite no-no not to take vitamin A supplementation when, you, when you're pregnant. Perfect. And the, the last thing I just wanted to ask, we've obviously discussed all of this in the context of a, an athlete that's uh, doing high levels of activity and, and maybe training for an event. Um, does any of this advice differ during times of recovery from an injury or rehabilitation from an injury and whether there's different requirements because the body is effectively building back up and recovering from from a significant event yeah when i mean when when you're injured you've usually had some inflammation you'll have have an activated uh, immune system uh and like you say you're you're having to go through after the inflammation phase you're going through the phase of sort of uh, you know repair and rebuilding it is important not to be deficient in any of the micronutrients when you're when when you're recovering from injury you might think the energy intake you need might be the same as just a sedentary person because you're no longer active because of your injury. You might even be immobilized in a plaster cast or something, you know. So, uh, but that's actually not the case because of the, there's an extra energy cost associated with that activation of your immune system and of the rebuilding of the tissue that's having to, to go on. If you are immobilized, one of the risks is, of course, you're going to lose muscle tissue. If you don't exercise your muscles, you get deconditioning. You also actually lose muscle mass. And to help to offset that, it's also important to keep up that relatively high protein intake that you take as an athlete to help guard against that. And then as soon as you can get into rehab to start doing some form of exercise, you know, do that. Perfect. Thank you so much. Is there anything else you think um, we've missed or anything else you wanted to add? Probably not. I think we've, we've been fairly comprehensive <laughs> there in, 
in 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 the coverage of that. Yeah, I mean, athletes are you know essentially normal people who just do a lot of exercise. So I mean, it's it, it's not too much rocket science here that we have to go into. Like you say, you know, there are certain concerns about protein intake, matching energy intake to energy expenditure on a daily basis. You know, people who are malnourished who don't get enough energy or enough protein or both have very poor immune systems and are very prone to to infections. So, you know, getting enough energy is is another thing that's important. And we, we get most of that from our carbs and from uh, healthy fats like oils and vegetable oils and seed oils and things like that. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you very much indeed. Love speaking to you. Thanks to Professor Gleason for joining me and giving us an insight into immunonutrition. If you want to hear more from Professor Gleason, you can find him on Twitter by searching Prof Mike Gleason, and he's also published some healthy lifestyle guidebooks, including Eat, Move, Sleep, Repeat, Beating Type 2 Diabetes, and the Pick and Mix Diet. If you want to keep up to date with upcoming podcast episodes, you can find me on Instagram by searching Marathon Medic, or you can visit marathonmedic.com for running routes, blogs and session ideas. Thanks for listening.